How can we solve this planet's energy problem? Space-based solar power may hold the answer, but a recent NASA study left a number of stones unturned. So today we're talking to John Mankins, who's been working on this idea since the 90s, and he knows the subject better than anyone. Got any better ideas? Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Threads, Instagram, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, it's time for episode 180 of the Space and Things Podcast. Things podcast, Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 180 of the Space and Things podcast. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing great. I'm doing good. Uh, I won't stay too long because we got a really awesome interview this week, so... How you doing, Dave? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Let's let's just crack on with it, shall we? Yes. For a long time now, when someone has asked me why spaceflight is important or relevant in today's world, I tell them that space holds the key to fixing our energy issues. Solar power is, of course, known for being a clean energy source, which is greatly needed to stop our dependency on burning fossil fuels or using more dangerous techniques such as nuclear power. However, the amount of solar panels needed on Earth to power everything would cover a huge area of land, and that in itself can cause environmental issues. And, of course, we have weather, which we have to contend with. So what is the answer? Well, for decades, the idea of harvesting solar energy in space and getting it back to Earth has been studied. And today we talk to one of the experts in this area, John Mankins. John is also on the board of directors for the National Space Society, and they have a lovely biography of him on their website, which we have trimmed a little bit for our own use. So thank you, National Space Society. (laughs) It begins... John C. Mankins, president of Artemis Innovation Management Solutions, LLC, is an internationally recognized leader in space systems and technology innovation and is a highly effective manager of large-scale technology R&D programs. Mr. Mankins' 25-year career at NASA and Caltech's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, ranged from flight projects and space missions operations to systems-level innovation and advanced technology research and development management. He is also well-known as an innovator in R&D management. Before leaving NASA, Mr. Mankins was the manager of Exploration Systems Research and Technology within the Exploration Systems Mission Directorate with responsibility for an $800 million annual budget involving more than 100 individual projects and over 3,000 personnel. For 10 years, he was the manager of Advanced Concept Studies at NASA and the lead for critical studies of space solar power, highly reusable space transportation, affordable human exploration approaches, and other topics. In recognition of his accomplishments, he has received numerous awards and honors, including the prestigious NASA Exceptional Technology Achievement Medal, of which he was the first recipient. He has authored or co-authored more than 80 published papers, reports, and other technical documents, and has testified before Congress on several occasions and has been consulted on R&D management and space issues with organizations in the U.S. and internationally. In essence, John Mankins is the perfect person to talk to about space solar power. So that's what we're going to do right now. Let's light this candle. It's time to crack on. 
Hi, John. Uh, welcome to Space and Things. First, we like a good scene setting question. So did you always want a career in space or did it start as an interest in the general sciences that eventually extended to space? So I grew up in a little town in California, uh, about 40 miles from Vandenberg Air Force Base. Nice. Uh, and watched uh, rocket launches every week from Vandenberg Air Force Base, which is now Vandenberg Space Force Base. Got up with my mother and watched the astronauts launch into space and go to the moon when I was very young, very tiny. And and so, yeah, I wanted to work in space pretty much my entire life since I was uh, seven. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. So let's further set the scene and discuss uh, the origins of space-based solar power. If we're not mistaken, this concept was initially put forward in the early 1970s by thinkers such as uh, Peter Glazer and, and Phil Chapman, the former astronaut. So can you discuss what these earlier ideas of space-based solar power looked like? So the very earliest fictional account of space solar power was in a, a, a story by uh, Isaac Asimov, which I, as I recall, was called Reason. That's from the 1940s. But that was not a practical approach to space solar power. Uh, then coming out of World War II, a very brilliant young gentleman by the name of William Brown, Bill Brown, invented microwave wireless power transmission wow. using the magnetron, which was uh, used for radar during World War II, and a device he invented called a rectifying antenna. Uh, which rectifies incoming RF energy and turns it into direct current. Along about the same time, of course, the space age got started. This is now the late 50s, early 60s. And the first satellites were launched, the first communications from space using radios, Sputnik, all of those things happened. And Bill Brown matured the initial technologies for wireless power transmission sufficiently so that he took it on to the Walter Cronkite News Hour uh, in 1963 and demonstrated power beaming on television. Wow. A few years later, Peter Glazer, uh, who had worked on the Apollo program as a as an engineer, he invented, this is 1968 now, using Bill Brown's uh, technology and using what he had learned in the space program, he invented the first concept, the system idea of the solar power satellite. And he patented that, got the patent in 1973. And from those early beginnings, there was an immense amount of interest after and, and during the final years of the Apollo program in the next big space endeavor. And that led to a wide variety of individuals like Phil Chapman uh, and many others in NASA, at JPL, in industry to get interested and to start pursuing this, uh, which is what led to the uh, initial system studies starting in the mid-1970s and then proceeding uh, to the end of that decade. When did you get involved with this? Luckily, in 1968, I was 12. Right. <laughs> so so I, I was in grade school. 
And as I went through uh, middle school uh, and high school, I didn't know anything about this this subject. I was interested in space exploration and and, uh, astronauts and Skylab. I later in college, I got interested in space development and asteroid mining. I did my senior thesis in, in college. I went to work in 1980 as a contractor at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I, I got into the space program as, as a part of the team at the Deep Space Network. Also, around that same time, all the work in the U.S. went away because right. the initial estimates for the infrastructure and the costs to develop space solar power were so stupendously high uh, on the order in, in today's dollars of between $500 billion and a, and a trillion dollars to get to the first kilowatt hour, they were so stupendously high that around 1980, 1981, all the work in the U.S. on space solar power stopped. Well, later, I started at JPL and then NASA about the same time. Some years later, I was at NASA headquarters working as the manager of advanced concept studies. And my boss at that time gave me an assignment. He said, look at this idea uh, space solar power. The work was all canceled in the in the in the 1980 time frame. Uh, you and though that all used technology from the mid 70s. Now it's 20 years later. It's the mid 90s. Don't you look to see whether or not there are new systems designs that are made possible by the new technologies that have come along since the mid 1970s that would change that outcome that would make space solar power more feasible. Hmm. And I had never worked on it before, but that that's now um, just coming up on 30 years ago, uh, 29 years ago. And that was my first involvement. So that brings us to our next question, actually. Uh, over the last 50 plus years, numerous concepts that would bring space-based solar power to Earth have been proposed. And obviously there are newer concepts uh, that probably are a little better than the earlier ones. So which concepts now show the most promise and how would they benefit Earth? So one of the big barriers back in the day, back in the 70s and and then into the 90s, was that the system concepts required uh, inordinately huge in-space infrastructures, space stations and factories and and hundreds of astronauts. And so that the way of, of that it was envisioned of building a solar power satellite was sort of like the way we all watched the space station being built uh, mm. starting 20 years ago with spacewalks and space shuttles going up and astronauts going out with wrenches. And <laughs> well, that that's all of that infrastructure was the reason it was going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars just to get started. Well, today, there are a range of concepts that exploit all of the advances that have been made, especially in the last 10 years, but going back to about 20 years. Advances in robotics, advances in structural systems, advances in automation, more recently, advances in the cost of launch, reductions in the cost of launch, and so on. And so today, there are several concepts, which I, I will I will say sort of leverage the work that we did back in the late 1990s, go from what I would describe as monolithic 
solar power satellite concepts, which are basically like a small communication satellite made huge. So instead of five or 10 tons, it would be 10,000 tons or 50,000 tons. The concepts that are the most promising are the ones that deconstruct that object, which is, you know, the size of a mountain or the size of a blue whale, bigger than a blue whale. It's like a, like downtown Manhattan. And, and they deconstruct it into literally thousands or millions of pieces, modular pieces that can be robotically assembled in space. You get rid of all the space stations, yeah. you get rid of the need for in-space factories initially, um, and you, you basically launch boxes of Lego. Synopsis, there are several promising concepts. The ones that are the most promising all use very high levels of modularity. So the pieces of the solar power satellite can be manufactured on Earth in factories, just like consumer electronics, launched in boxes, like like boxes of toys, and taken out and, and assembled uh, by different scenarios with uh, with robots of one kind or another. I love that. The idea of space Lego is, is such a, a fun concept that I'm sure everyone can get their head around as well. So let's say that these solar stations are now built in space is the general concept then the same on on how it works is it in my head it's a solar panel that receives energy from the sun much like any other solar panel and in my head it then gets beamed back to earth to a receiving station is that how it works yeah precisely precisely so so there'd be an array of of um a, a, a large number of solar panels, an array of solar panels connected to a large number of RF transmitters, radio transmitters. I think most people may have seen the the flat panel receiver for like the Starlink satellites. Yeah. Uh, it would be flat panels like that, but it would transmit rather than be, be for receiving. And you put up a large number of those. They make one big surface on the, on one side is the, photovoltaics, the, the solar panels on the other side are the large number of RF transmitting tiles. Energy comes in, converted to electricity. The electricity is converted back into radio frequency, and then it's transmitted as a coherent, but relatively low intensity beam to a receiver on the earth, which is still based on that rectifying antenna invented by Bill Brown in the ni- late 1950s. That's still the best way to do it. It's very high efficiency. Then it's uh, sent off to the, to the marketplace. In concept, you might think about space solar power in terms of the receiver as being a bit like a lake. Yeah. So it's, a, it's not tiny. It's a big thing because it's low intensity power to be, to be safe. And so, uh, but I'll give you a good example. So Lake Mead, which is behind uh, Boulder Dam uh, in uh, the U.S., delivers power to Las Vegas, produces Mm -hmm. about 500 megawatts, and the surface of the lake is about 415 square kilometers. So that's hydropower. It's 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 a lake that produces electricity. A solar power satellite receiver analogous to Lake Mead might be about 10 square kilometers. So about 2% of the size and would produce about one 
thousand megawatts, about twice the power. Wow. So a little bit more than 2% of the area producing about twice as much power and it can do it all the time. Doesn't, you know, have to depend on how much water is in the lake, never get, you know, has trouble with droughts. It's 24 seven through any kind of weather and can be delivered then to the marketplace with much greater reliability and assurance than almost any other kind of uh, power uh, with the, with a couple of exceptions. Wow. All right. So that actually brings us to our next question. I love it when an interview just, just uh, (laughs) blends perfectly with the question. So from an energy standpoint, many energy sources on earth can damage the environment, uh, such as coal, obviously has a lot of pollution, Uh, nuclear power. I'm a little biased. I used to work in the nuclear industry. Nuclear power is a great source, but it's faced a lot of scrutiny because of accidents over the last 50 years. You know, we got obviously like Three Mile Island, Fukushima, stuff like that. So is space-based solar power genuinely sustainable and and perhaps more environmentally sound? So because of the elimination of these huge in-space infrastructures, using contemporary uh, modular designs and and robotics to assemble the, the platform, the carbon footprint for a solar power satellite is no bigger than the carbon, even including the launch, it's no bigger than the carbon footprint approximately than a terrestrial solar array. Right. However, Unlike a terrestrial solar array that can only produce power when the sun is shining and the sky is clear, solar power satellites can produce energy and deliver it to the market 24-7, day or night, rain or shine, winter or summer. And so the energy return on energy investment, which is a surrogate for the carbon footprint, if you use a carbon-based energy like coal or natural gas, to provide the energy to build the satellite and to launch it into space is on the order of 99, 99 times more energy out than you put energy in. The payoff time is on the order of months, not years. And with terrestrial solars, depending on where you put it, you put a solar array in Arizona, your payoff time might be, you know, six or 12 months. You put that same solar array, same technology, same cost in Germany and your payoff time is going to be two, three, four years, depending on on how lucky you are. Yeah. So the carbon footprint of space solar power has the potential to be drastically less than any other renewable energy source. I, I will just mention that, that that isn't to say that you do space solar power instead of terrestrial solar or terrestrial wind, these intermittent green energy sources and which are now being happily deployed worldwide, but you can supplement your terrestrial solar with space solar. So because the space solar power system can deliver the power anywhere on the earth that it can see during the daytime, it's a beautiful sunny day in London. You can use um, ground solar to your heart's content. But then when it's foggy for three weeks in a row, <laughs> you can deliver the power to London from space. So right. you, you, uh, you basically, you have a combination. So you have a hybrid system where you have terrestrial wind and solar. And when you need it, you can call up space solar 
assuming you have the receiver already in place, and it makes space solar power a dispatchable form of a baseload, low-cost green power, very much the way uh, natural gas is being used today to supplement ground solar when the sun's not shining, etc. Right. And why would you not just roll it out and, and have it as the principal source? Well, terrestrial solar is ex- extraordinarily robust. It can be rooftop. It can be completely local. You can have microgrids. It can, you know, a, one neighborhood could be energy self-sufficient. It's, it's a remarkably robust architecture and the manufacturing has gotten the costs very, very low, mm-hmm. but you can't use it all the time. So I think one of the negatives for nuclear is not actually related to the safety, but rather that it doesn't play well with other children. Yeah, You turn on a nuclear reactor power station, it's going to run for decades unless you deliberately slowly turn it back off again to like replace the fuel rods or something or repair some integral part of the system uh, after some damage. But ordinarily, it just runs and runs and runs. So you can't say, I'm going to use solar during the day and I'm going to use nuclear at night because you can't turn off the nuclear during the day. You could shut the power, just throw away that power. But then your your taxpayers, your ratepayers are going to be paying for that whether they use it or not, which has proven to be a big barrier for integrating these big thermal power stations with these intermittent sources like wind and solar. But space solar can address that issue and go directly into the market without trying to push aside these other sources uh, like wind and solar or hydro, where the water is, um, that have been around for years or in which so much money has already been invested. All right. I'm beginning to get my head around this now. Um, so, this has been seen as controversial, and, and a recent NASA study was certainly not over-enamored in, with the idea. Obviously, used to work for NASA, but what, what is NASA's problem with it at the moment? Why are they not jumping on the idea? Well, NASA is an organization, an agency of the U.S. government created by the Space Act of 1958, and NASA views itself as having four basic missions. Uh, those basic missions are Earth and space science, you know, going to Mars and studying our planet, human space flight, astronauts to the moon and on to Mars and space stations and so on, and aeronautics research uh, going back uh, more than 100 years at the old, the former NASA predecessor, NACA. Energy for Earth is not one of NASA's current missions. Right. And the people at NASA don't really want to work on it. I'm not saying they're all, they all don't want to work on it, but they really don't want to work on it. And I have to say, if you look at the recently published report, uh, came out January 11th, I believe, of this year, 2024, that report has some extraordinarily reasonable findings and recommendations at the end. Got a very reasonable charter at the very beginning. And the analysis has excellent methodology, perfectly legitimate, rigorous mm-hmm. systems analysis, good modeling with, you know, somebody did spreadsheets and they, they did that, all that was right. <laughs> but the assumptions that went into that model were weird. Right. They were, they were just unreasonably pessimistic. So if, if you had a range of options or a range of estimates for the, the life cycle cost of your new house, 
and my new house is going to cost, you know, $300,000 to build or to, to buy and then $300,000 over its lifetime for, you know, all the possible expenses. That's the average. Now, it might be twice that or it might be 100 times that if my neighborhood turns into downtown New York City. Uh, yeah. There turns out I'm on a floodplain. Turns out my house burns down every year. So the NASA study basically assumed the worst of the worst of the worst technological cases for all the key cost drivers for space solar power all at once. There's there's one line. There's one line in in the report. I don't remember what page it's on, but it says you know if 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 all of these things turn out to be better than we've assumed, oh, the cost of space solar power will be about three cents a kilowatt hour. But the baseline assumptions on which they spend all these pages talking about the cost of space solar power is stupendously high. For example, they assume that the cost of the solar power satellite is about $10, $12 billion. That's not a bad estimate. That's a reasonable estimate. As to deliver 2,000 megawatts, 2 gigawatts, 10 to $12 billion. It, I think it's going to be less, but nevertheless, it's within striking distance. Yeah. But then in addition to that 10 to $12 billion, they added with no evidence, no, no concept studies. Nobody has ever looked at this. Nobody's ever said this is required. They added $157 billion in cost for maintenance. Wow. If they took the baseline 10 to 12, they added $157 billion, including some $30 billion included in that number for debris removal. And it, it turns out that they assumed that this satellite, which they were going to spend 10 to $12 billion on, for which they needed $157 billion for maintenance, that its lifetime was only going to be 10 years. Right. So it's like, I'm going to build Hoover Dam. <laughs> I'm going to have a crew of you know, 100,000 people <laughs> working on Hoover Dam while it's in life. And every 10 years, I'm going to tear it down and build a new one. <laughs> so the combination of assumptions was so stupendously odd. It's remarkable. I'll give you one more baseline number. So the cost of space solar power from the 1970 studies, let's say, let's say it's a, it's a trillion dollars, thousand billion dollars. That was going to produce 300 gigawatts of electricity. So the cost per watt, $10 trillion divided by 9 billion watts. And so you, you end up with a number of something like $3 per watt. Yeah. $30,000 a kilowatt, some number like that. And I'm doing this in my head. So please forgive me if I bungled a number. The NASA study that just came out was going to spend... Three to four hundred billion dollars for two gigawatts. Yeah, right. So it's one hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars per watt. So it's basically a hundred times more expensive for the power than the studies from the NASA did in the nineteen seventies. And how could we have gone backwards so badly that the cost of the power would go up by a hundredfold? In 50 years. And and the answer is, well, we didn't go backwards so badly. It's just in the assumptions. Right. I, I assume that my, I, I'm, it's going to be terribly, terribly expensive and, and I'm going to have to replace it all the time. And it's called lost cost of launches. It's going to be horrible. And I make all those assumptions and look, I get answers that look terrible. Yeah, of course. 
obviously you've, you've said that the concepts are to build fairly big solar stations in space from from small Lego kind of kits. Love that. How many of those big stations would need to be in, in orbit, roughly, to be effective? Would it be like a constellation of Starlink where we're seeing so many, so many thousands of satellites blocking the skies? Well, there would be millions of modules, but they'd all be connected to one another. Yeah. So it'd be like a colony of ants or a, a, a coral reef. So each satellite would produce one or two thousand megawatts and could be used in concert with the terrestrial systems, as we discussed. So I would think uh, to, to really make a, a significant difference working with terrestrial green energy solutions, you'd need something like three, four, five hundred of these platforms. Right. Okay. Which would be something like 300 gigawatts to one terawatt, something like that. I think the U.S.'s power requirement is for like 11 terawatts. Okay. So maybe maybe uh, uh, 10% of that, but serving the whole world uh, would really make a big difference. And the reason it would make a difference is because you'd use it in combination with terrestrial solar and terrestrial wind. What, what kind of orbit are we looking at here? Are we looking at low Earth orbit or geostationary? How high do these things have to go? Got to be at least middle Earth orbit or higher right. normally. There are some concepts that are looking at highly elliptical orbits like Molniya orbits, but most of the concepts that are being looked at um, go uh, to a geostationary or a geosynchronous orbit, which is about 37,000 kilometers above the Earth. Uh, you, can't put them, you can put them in low Earth orbit for demonstration purposes, but these uh, satellites are, are not dense. They're light and fluffy. They're, they're large and light. And so if it was in a low Earth orbit, not only would it be a, be a horrible nightmare for orbital debris, mm -hmm. but it would also tend to re-enter. It would re-enter really fast because it's like putting a feather outside the window of your car as you're driving along at, at uh, <laughs> 80 kilometers an hour or uh, 60 miles an hour. The feather just goes whoosh. So that, that'd be the way a solar power satellite would be in LEO. It, it won't stay there very long. That's what I assumed. I just uh, wanted to double check with an expert, of course. It with the the problem with being that high, and again, this is this is an uneducated statement uh, here. Is there any risk that beaming back microwave energy? Is it microwave energy? Is that is that what you, what you discussed? It, beaming back whatever the energy source comes from these these satellites. Can it affect any of the other satellites in low Earth orbit or any spacecraft that is lower down if it crosses paths? Is that how this works? Do you have to worry about those kind of things? And and obviously the other question, and, and I, I'm not asking this, but I know that someone out there will also say, what if the what if the beams from these stations hit something that's not one of the receivers? Does that cause any problems with radiation or think, any issues like that? So to answer the second question first, the intensity of the transmission is really very low okay. by comparison to summer sunlight. So if you go out in the Sahara Desert in the middle of summer on a clear day and you look up at the sun, you're getting about a thousand watts of sunlight per square meter. Right. A solar power satellite transmission at the peak is like 200 watts of, per square meter of of radiant energy, microwave energy. So the, the power density is way lower than, than sunlight. Microwave energy cannot cause mutagenic effects. It, it's, 
They're very long wavelengths. They're about as long as your hand. Uh, they can't break chemical bonds. They're too, too long. They cause heating. And that's why, you know, everybody has a microwave oven in their kitchen. But they don't cause any cellular damage other than heating up your soup or heating up your coffee. Sunlight, of course, has a lot of ultraviolet and it can cause mutagenic effects. It breaks chemical bonds. It causes skin cancer. So sunlight is far less, far more dangerous to living things than low intensity microwave. And there have been multiple studies validating this. This is why we live in a, in a world now that is, is basically embedded in an electromagnetic field from our, our phones, our wireless routers, the leakage from our microwave ovens, all of these devices. We just live in all this electromagnetic energy, which fortunately is all at these long wavelengths that don't harm us except for some heating. So that's the second question. First yeah. question, the one kind of, of a citizen in our, in our modern society who might be affected by microwave energy are, of course, electronics because they communicate with microwaves and they care about electromagnetic waves. Right. So there are a couple of solutions to help solve that problem going forward. One, over time, not, not instantly, but over time, let's say you were building out a solar power satellite industry. Satellites in space can have what are called notch filters. Basically, it makes the satellite colorblind at the frequency that the solar power satellite is going to transmit at. So, yeah. so you get a, get a constellation of satellites in low Earth orbit. You get all this stuff. It wouldn't be able to see and therefore wouldn't be able to be harmed by the specific frequency of microwave that the solar power satellites are using. So that's one trick. Another one is, frankly, even though when you look at these um, computer graphics showing what our, our environment at low Earth orbit looks like, it's still true that most of space, even in low Earth orbit, is still empty. Yeah. That's, that's why we can have constellations like uh, OneWeb and, and Kuiper System and Starlink and a space station and, and all coexisting in low Earth orbit. It's because most of space is still empty. And so the solar power satellite is basically like a giant radar. For example, if it's seeing, it's transmitting power to the ground, and it sees a satellite or sees a space station about to go through the beam. Well, a second or two before the satellite reaches the beam, it can turn off the beam. Yeah. And wait. And the satellites in low Earth orbit are moving at about seven kilometers per second. The, it'll pass the entire length width of the beam and be, be on its way the other side in less than a second. And you turn the beam back on. Uh, this is like the automatic braking system, which is no radar or sonar on your automobile where it breaks and then it starts yep. up again. So we can do this in cars. We can do this for space. I mean, so one, <laughs> you put in these notch filters, you make them safe for, you know, just in case. And secondly, for the things that matter, you, you register them. And when you see them coming up to the beam, you turn off the beam and you let them pass. You turn the beam back on, Yeah, but you got to design for it. It's not that the beam doesn't have to go from geo to the earth. It does. And, yeah. and if you don't want things to pass through it, you're going to need to design the system to shut off and turn back on again. So when do you uh, think we can reasonably expect to start seeing this happen? You know, are we on the cusp of it? Is this concept ready to go or is there going to be a long wait? So we could literally, you could design and build these modules in a matter of months, like 12 to 18 months. You could make 50 of them. 
in another 12 or 18 months, you could make 500 of them. Yeah. You could set up factories. Uh, I'll give you a good example. SpaceX went from converting an old rocket factory into a Starlink factory in a couple of years and started producing 30 to 40 tons of Starlink hardware every month. Yeah. And, and of course, now in a matter of, of a handful of years, less than a handful of years, they've launched 4,500 satellites. So it's one of the things about this hypermodular approach. You make all the pieces small, you can rapidly evolve them, mm -hmm. you can te develop, test, redesign, develop, test, redesign really fast. This is like consumer electronics. We get a new Apple iPhone every year yeah. um, and they manufacture tens of millions of them. So if you do it this way, it's not the way we do space systems conventionally. It's the way we do terrestrial robotics and terrestrial factories and all these things now. I think that within four to five years, you could have a major demonstration in space. And within 10 or 12 years, you could have the first operational platform. And then essentially every year after that, you'd have first one every year, and then you'd have two every year, and then you'd have three every year until you built out the infrastructure that you wanted. So uh, within 10, 12 years, the first one, uh, by the middle of the century, dozens. And by, the, by later in the century, hundreds. That's actually, unfortunately, a little bit slower than I was hoping, but that's me being a dreamer. <laughs> when someone's asked me about why, why is spaceflight relevant, the example I always use is we're developing space solar power, which is going to save the world because it's going to make, make energy a lot cleaner. Am I right in that statement or, or is it going to save the world in association with other things? Is it going to be the silver bullet that I hope it's going to be or is it? Am I a little bit naive in that statement? You are a little naive, but you're still essentially correct in the following sense. It may very well be that my car is able to go. I mean, I, it's it's fabulous, but I need new new spark plugs, or I need a new. Uh, I need to update the uh, software in my uh, in my uh, transmission. The whole car is fine, but I need to do this one critical thing to make it go. So I think I think that the investments that have been made are now being made in terrestrial renewable are all fine, but they don't work when the sun's not shining. They don't yeah. work for weeks at a time when it's the rainy season. And so getting those deployed on a very large scale is being held up. It's like yeah. the problem of the last mile. They're being held up because you can't persuade anybody in Singapore to give up coal because they, they ought to be willing to, to go without power for weeks at a time. Singapore doesn't want to go without weeks for power without weeks at a time. Space solar power breaks that barrier. It is a silver bullet, but it doesn't have to solve the whole problem. It just has to solve the critical roadblock that's stopping progress. Absolutely. That that makes a lot more sense than, than how I had it in my head and is a lot more realistic than how I had it in my head. So so thank you for the being the voice of reason. This has been really wonderful. Emily, have you got anything else? I, I have nothing else. This has been really fascinating to hear about because I've had a lot of questions about this subject for for a long time, and this has cleared him up for me. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Really, oh. really do appreciate this. My pleasure. And uh, we'll look forward to more updates on this. New episodes every Thursday. Make sure you're subscribed on your podcast provider. I, I thought that was a fascinating conversation. 
I, I've often been fascinated with the the subject of space-based solar power. If you know a little bit about Gerard K. O'Neill, he was also an advocate of it, and he worked a lot with Peter Glazer, who is kind of considered the the one of the godfathers of a uh, space-based solar power. So this is a topic that I've been curious about for a long time because I'm one of those people, I'm really an advocate of alternate energy sources. I'm a big advocate of nuclear power because in a lot of ways, it's I think it's a little cleaner than coal power. However, I do concede there are problems with nuclear power, you know, such as you can't necessarily throttle it down. You have to keep it maintenance all the time for obvious reasons. You don't want to have a problem. And obviously it creates nuclear waste, which is going to have to be dealt with at some time or another. And I've often looked at the concept of space-based solar power as a, as a very clean alternate energy source. I mean, obviously you're going to have rocket launches and things like that. But I think in the long run, compared to stuff like obviously coal and gas and, and nuclear, it's a lot greener. We know the Earth is having issues. We don't want Earth to become Venus, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. We don't want that to happen um, because uh, global warming is real. People are going to say, well, why is it so cold? Then That's because of global warming. <laughs> in Florida, it's been cold for weeks. That's not normal. Mm. That's not normal here. It's supposed to be like in the 70s. It is not in the 70s. I can assure you of that. I'm freezing at night. Um, first world problems I, I, I could know. Just hear St- I could hear Steve chuckling in the background there. <laughs> Sorry, I guess I he guess is. our listeners uh, won't, won't have heard that, but I, I could hear your husband chuckling around in the back. He is. He's laughing. He's shaking his head because he's like, I'm fine. It's not that cold. Whatever. She's a wuss. He's right. I am a wuss. But but still, I'm a floor. I am a native Floridian, and we are not okay. All right, we are suffering down here. We are not okay. We we have to wear sweaters. We have to wear like socks with our flip flops for real. I mean, it's just it's really hard, man. And um, no, but seriously, ser- get, getting back to the serious thing, though. I mean, as far as the NASA study, you know, I I did look at the study myself because I was curious. I'm not trying to diss NASA. I love NASA. There are some issues with it, and I hope maybe they relook at this issue. And there's also that hope that I have that I hope independent companies look at this as well and start developing it, maybe without, maybe without NASA, even just as a demo. I feel like that's inevitable. I think at the end of the day, any business person who's sitting on a load of money is looking at the energy crisis we have in the world at the moment with rising prices for, mm-hmm. for energy going, how, yeah. how can I get involved in this and make a difference and also make a trillion? Like you're talking, that's how much exactly. is at stake here. I, I'm almost fairly certain that the likes of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have got into space because they can see that the future of the planet and the future of money being made is through energy coming from space. They may not have necessarily thought about solar panel, but I'm certain that that it's something to do with that be space mining or or whatever it is. So at the end of the day, it makes a lot of financial sense based on the numbers that, that John was using there to do it. So I, I, I think actually it makes a lot of sense for a commercial company, probably more sense than NASA based also on what John said, that it's not really in their remit to do it. And I can see it happening fairly, fairly soon. And I hope it does. I, 
I'm not a fan of nuclear power, especially not for commercial use. I just, I just think it's too, it's too much of a risk. Oh, I respect it, and I do appreciate and I do acknowledge that it's cleaner than coal. That when it's working, <laughs> when it is working, it is a clean energy source. Yeah, I, I, and I'm not saying that 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 it isn't. The issue is humans, um, in terms of l- looking after it. Uh, and maintaining it and, yeah. and funding it it's to high make sure exactly, and that's that's my concern with it. You, you can't, can't just leave it alone. No, you can't. With how volatile the, the planet is being as well, with these weather systems and tectonic plates and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't take a lot to really upset a nuclear power station. That's all. That's that's just my yeah. my theory. And, and often these things don't get yeah. put too far away from from. from uh, populations because it's more efficient for uh, powering things that are more local. So that that's, that's my theory of it. And I understand that. I'm not, I won't attack that because I get it. And I've talked to a lot of people who feel likewise and they have valid points. I'm not going to be like, Oh, mm. I'm not going to crap on their point because those are completely valid. Um, Fukushima. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to bring that up because that's one of the worst case scenarios, but Fukushima had a bad design and we saw what happened with that, and, and of course, lessons have been learned, and so on and so but forth. But still, those are problems. There are potential issues that we can't just say, "Well, that's just a outlier." Well, you still have to. An outlier is still something that happened. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. So, and it's not. And it's not to say. And we tried to probe John on it about potential issues with with doing something from space, of which there can be, and there will be, and there'll be unforeseen stuff. I'm sure that we that we don't know of. I, it still feels safer to me to, to go down this route, and, and 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 we need safe, and we need regular, and and this feels like the option. So I I do see this happening. I hope happening sooner than the timeline that 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 John has suggested, simply because of the commercial prospects of it. And I think perhaps if it's left to government, it would take a lot longer. Uh, but but then yeah. I'm I'm not going to argue with his timeline because he's an expert who's been in this field for years, and I'm just someone who's speculating. But to to me, I could I could quite easily see a scenario where a billionaire comes in and goes right in two years we're going to have this ready to launch. Yeah, because because it just makes sense. It sounds like something Dev yeah, from, exa- from from mankind, mankind exactly. would be like next season yeah. on the front. Like it sounds like something that he would be like, all right, let's get going. You yeah, know, absolutely, yeah. And so, so may, maybe it's going to be a long time. Maybe it won't be. But I, I still think this whole topic is interesting. I think it's something that I've wanted to talk about for a long time and this opportunity. Thank you to Rod Pyle for the introduction. Yes, thank you, Rod. This has been something we've been wanting to talk about for a long, long time. And, you know, if this show is going to come to an end at show 200, we're still 20 patrons short, then I wanted to make sure we did it. And the report from NASA gave us an opportunity to do that. John has a book. He has a book called The Case for Space Solar Power. There's a second edition coming out later this year, he said. So if you really want to know a bit more and you enjoyed hearing John talk about it, obviously he's an expert, go and check that out. I'll put everything in the show notes, which you can find on spaceandthingspodcast.com or by clicking in the link in the description of this podcast on your podcast provider and the full unedited interview. You can watch it on patreon.com forward slash space and things splashing down after a fiery re-entry this is space and things so emily what has caught your eye in space flight this week well i saw a tweet this morning and i just want to entitle it space is hard a voyager one update this is directly from nasa jpl uh, on twitter or x whatever it's called uh, engineers are still working to resolve a data issue on voyager one we can talk to the spacecraft and it can hear us but it's a slow process given the spacecraft's incredible distance from Earth. So they're going to keep us informed. 
And another uh, post from NASA Voyager says, you know, interstellar space is harder. You know, solving issues like this takes time because it takes more than 22 hours for a message to travel from (laughs) Earth to Voyager 1 and another 22 hours for a response to make it back, which just is mind blowing to me. JPL is still trying to work the issues with Voyager 1. I'm cautiously optimistic they will, as we all, many of us know, Voyager 1 has been in space for almost 47 years. It's older than I am, which is saying a lot. You know, I got some knee and hip pain in the morning, so (laughs) you can bet, you best believe that Voyager 1 is, you know, having a little bit of growing pains out there. So, yeah, they're still working on it. So let's keep pulling for Voyager 1. Absolutely. Dave, what's caught your eye this week? Okay, well, as as we record this today, it's the 7th of February, and I've really enjoyed so many posts online to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the first untethered spacewalk. Yes! It's great to see Bruce McCandless, the, the second, getting some uh, some lovely recognition. So that's that's been very enjoyable. And also, I got an email this week, and it's gone public as well. The social media accounts are up, and it's been talked about that... Haviland Digital and Tiger Lily Productions are making a new movie. This is the team that have made Mission Control yes. and the Armstrong movie and Last Man on the Moon documentary. And they're making a movie called Space Woman. And it's about Eileen Collins. And it's based on the book by Eileen Collins and Jonathan Ward, who we spoke to before on this podcast. So, yes, there is a 90-minute documentary set to be completed this year for a theatrical release in 2025. So I'll put links to their social media accounts in our show notes. So you, we're all going to want to see it. These guys make great documentaries. Yeah, and I'm Eileen really excited. Collins, yeah, Eileen Collins is a perfect subject. Uh, so yes, she is. Uh, if anyone's read her book with Jonathan Ward, it is a masterpiece. Get the audio book if you haven't got it, although it's slightly irritating. It's read by someone who can't even pronounce NASA, but it's still uh, fantastically <laughs> uh, it's still a fantastically written book and an incredible yeah, story. Great book. Great book. We're going for launch. It's time for Space and Things. So that's it for this week. Uh, an episode which has taught us how to save the world, perhaps. <laughs> Not bad, eh? Anyway, thank you for all your Let's support. Um, yes, we've had some interesting discussion about the beanie toke debate that we started last week. Kevin Jennings has written in and said that in Texas, where he grew up, they are called beanies. However, in Tennessee, where he lives now, they're called toboggans. And he was apparently what very confused for a long time hearing people talk about toboggans and not knowing what they were on about until we realised that they're just a beanie. Anyway, <laughs> the beanies or toques or toboggans, the debate rages on, And but we have some on our merch store, so please check out our store over at spaceandthingspodcast.com. The toques are a bit more expensive, even though it's exactly the same product <laughs> as the beanie. I just decided to be a bit cheeky. Anyway, as Dave has said, thanks to all who continue to support what we do. Uh, We'll be back next week with some more Space and Things, but don't forget, in space, no one can hear you need.